Welcome to Co-op Energy Talk. This is Rachel Johnson, the Member Relations Manager here at Cherryland Electric Cooperative. And today we're doing something a little bit different with the show. We have a special treat. I'm joined by a few of my friends, uh, none of whom work in the electric industry. They are all young professionals in the Grand Traverse area, and I invited them on the podcast to discuss what energy technologies they're most excited about seeing come to fruition, or they think might have the biggest impact. So things like smart thermostats, electric vehicles, solar panels, solar roof tiles, the Tesla Powerwall, smart appliances, technology is changing and it's changing our industry. And many of those changes will impact the way we generate, transmit, and consume energy. So joining me today to talk about these changes and what excites them most are Jan Gett. Jan practices tax and business law with a law firm whose name is too long for me to pronounce, I'm gonna let him pronounce it himself. That's quite all right, thank you. <laughs> Hi, Rachel. Hi. <laughs> uh, in addition, Jan's uh, previously spent about five years with the tax division of the U.S. Department of Justice, which we will not hold against him, and he is also a vice chairman of another local electric utility, Traverse City Light and Power. And there probably some rule that requires me to say that anything I say today is not a reflection of the views of Traverse City Light and Power. So, so there, no. there's your disclaimer, yeah, Rachel. Leave it to the lawyer, right? Uh, also joining us is Warren Call. Warren is a financial services professional here in the Grand Traverse region. He's also a real smart cookie. He holds an MBA in international finance from St. John's University in Rome and a BA in history from MSU, which I will not hold against him as a Penn State alum. And Warren is also really active locally in things like the National Cherry Festival Foundation, the Rotary Club, Goodwill, and I could keep going on and on. I think he used to chair the young professionals. He's just an all-around swell guy. Hi, Warren. Hello, Rachel. Thank he you also knows how to write a better biography than I do, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, I mean, I was going to talk to you about that later. Your biography uh, providing skills, are, they leave much to be desired. I'm a humble man. <laughs> Well, and on that note, uh, we're going to kick off. So, Warren, let me know, like, what technology are you most excited about and you think we need, you think we need to see happen? Well, as I thought about this topic, Rachel, what really struck out to me was not so much each one of those individual technologies, that's v all of them are very interesting and, and some really neat stuff going on, but more the interaction of all of those technologies. So, uh, and I didn't actually know the term for it until I did a little bit of research, but Distributed energy networks is oh. the topic that I find the most compelling. And I don't know how familiar anyone in the audience might be with that, but that's where the generation, the distribution, and the storage is just as decentralized as the usage of energy. And that strikes me as pretty interesting because um, as we think about this kind of Internet of Things, a lot of those things that you listed earlier, uh, ticking off uh, new technologies, what the Internet of Things will do will allow kind of intelligent assets, mm -hmm. whether they're generation uh, capacity, distribution capacity, and the, it'll tie the whole grid together with that technology so that individual assets are really thinking for themselves. So Warren, let me, let me say, first of all, as the big bad utility in the room, what you're saying sounds a little bit like me having less of a job, so I'm not sure I like it, but what, what about it? is exciting. Like, wh why do you think that's a good direction for energy to be headed? Well, I think it's interesting, and, and one of the key things is because of the profound impact it'll have on the energy industry. It will be game-changing, at least from what I read. I'm not a, I'm not an expert in this field at all, but I think this is really neat. And if, if you think about it in broad spectrum, what it means for the ener energy industry is you move from like a capital-intensive, centralized, generation service 
to services like information management and consulting being a bigger deal and a main a bigger focus for uh, the utility industry. So it changes the, it doesn't necessarily get rid of the need for the utility, it changes the role the utility plays in helping to kind of manage the energy environment of the community. Completely. It, it changes their role from from centralized to more of a, they oversee the network is a better way to put it. So uh, admitting that certainly uh, apropos of this conversation, the technologies have changed. You know, we used to have a decentralized generation system. And what we found was the most cost effective way for us to power a significant electric load, which it, the reality is you may see some, you know, we're seeing more energy efficiency, but the electric load of the United States is quite large, <laughs> um, was to do so with centralized generating resources and transmitting across. And you think that that was just... Not wrong. that that's wrong or that that's going to go away. I don't think that that's going to go away. I think you're always going to have to have those kind of large capacity infrastructure to, to handle the peak loads and, and, the, and the large you know, base capacity. What's interesting, though, is you augment that with energy generation across the grid from very um, decentralized, small produce, production facilities all over the place at individual homes, at individual businesses. And the energy companies, the utility companies, it's still their job to plan, build, install, finance, and manage those assets and that infrastructure. But a lot of it may not be housed in a centralized area. It may be housed at a customer's location instead of at a large plant. So when you say plan, build, finance, wait, no, now, now, we're, now it's getting kind of interesting, Warren. Mm -hmm. So you're saying my job is to have an to, to plan for what's going to go on the roof of my member's home? Do I, am I paying for it? And I, by I, I mean the utility. Like, are, are we paying for it as well, financing it? Are we responsible for maintaining it? Because one of the things that I think a lot, it's, it's it, the idea of decentralized is attractive until people start to realize, well, shoot, right now I don't have to think about it, mm -hmm. right? I just flip the switch and like, like magical right. electric unicorns make it happen. And what you're describing is now I actually have to like think about it and fix it when it breaks. So imagine decentralization meaning you have you combine those two things. So you have energy generation spread out all over the network, but the utility still serves that role of managing the distribution, managing the usage, even though they don't necessarily own the assets or have the assets physically at one location. That sounds like it's going to make planning much more complicated for local electric utilities. Well, I and think and so. Jan well, is involved in, in planning for a local electric utility yeah, as so a board member of Light and Power, so he may have some. Well, Rachel, let me ask you this. You say that that scares you. Why does it scare you as a utility what he's proposing? Because he's just telling us that you're just going to spend 40 hours of your week doing something other than what you're doing now, but you're still spending all the time and presumably charging people a lot of money for it. I'm not sure. If, did I use the word scares? Did I say yes. I was afraid? Yes. As a big utility, that scares me. Yeah. I, okay. Fair enough. No, you, I did say that. <laughs> I mean, I think any in any industry. It's an occupational flaw. Fair, yeah. Fair <laughs> enough. I know. Shoot. Never invite a lawyer on the podcast again. <laughs> Just made a note of that. Um, no, I think any any the thing with technology and what makes this topic interesting to me is it has the potential to be disruptive in any industry, right? And so, of course, when you are kind of a part of or a representative of that industry, you have to kind of have your eye on the, the potential disruptions that technology will have. 
And what makes me, and I wouldn't say scared as in scared, scared, but more nervous is this sounds much harder. Electricity is not just a, um, it's not just something we want. Like it's literally something we need. We need it for our economy. We need it for our health, whatever, keep hospitals powered to keep kids in schools. Like it's a, it's a, it's a need. So people have very little tolerance for not having it available when they need it. And planning for that kind of load is already difficult when you control all the assets. Then when you add in the complexities you're describing, it's just it's a it's a really interesting potential disruption mm-hmm. to that planning in an area where I'm not sure that most electric users have any tolerance for disruption. And so the mantra of our utility, who shall remain nameless for the duration of this broadcast. Oh, shoot. Sorry. I know. Do I get the disqualifier <laughs> you started with, too? <laughs> I don't speak on behalf of, well, I mean, I do cherry land, but not, not, not the other right. one. So one thing that the utilities, at least the non-investor-owned utilities, say as their mantra is safe, reliable, cheap. And what I'm hearing from Rachel is it may be safe, Maybe mm, cheap, but it's certainly not going to be reliable, mm-hmm. and that is that is a big issue. So right now, you know, we have a more centralized system, and that centralized system sometimes results in a humongous blackout, like the one that the East Coast suffered from um, while I was in law school. So I can't remember when that was, but that was in the early aughts, mm-hmm. when an, an entire part of the grid goes off. Now. What Warren is suggesting is we have a whole bunch of these potential disruptions, and so the impact of any one of those could be small, but the frequency will go through the roof. And unless I'm not understanding Rachel's comments, the suggestion is that perhaps our customers are far more likely to accept an act of God once in a while, but they're not going to like the minor inconveniences every other day. I totally just changed my mind. You're invited back anytime. He says me better than I say me because that's that's what I meant. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, it's interesting because we're actually required to, um, and we're not required to, we track all of these things for um, kind of system planning, right? We we track both frequency of interruptions and duration of interruptions. Mm -hmm. And you're right, those are two different aspects of the kind of reliability equation. And, And let me use this as an example. So the August storm, right? Most of us lost power. I don't think anyone was upset that they lost power because we recognized it for what it was. It was a once in a decade event. Now, on Christmas Day, at least our, some customers of an unidentified utility also lost power, but the sky was blue and there was a lot of upset people. Now, the interruption in the service lasted maybe three or four hours versus people who were without power for two or three days or up to a week. But I think the anger was much higher when the the disruption came with no explanation that is readily available to a customer. And so, you know, it's an interesting philosophical question whether as an econ, you know, if you divide the world into humans and econs, whether an econ would prefer frequent minor disruptions or a big infrequent distraction, but I think that humans would always prefer one single bad event to, quite frankly, never knowing whether or not their electricity is going to go off. Well, and I I don't disagree with that. I also just think that 
really the tolerance for any sort of disruption in electric power is very, very low. And so what what I see, Warren, with what you're describing is maybe not quite going quite where you're quite as far as you're taking it, but saying, are there ways that we can continue to incorporate distributed assets into our system in a way that accommodates the customer that wants that, you know, has a um, long-term benefit to them, whatever that might be, but also might have the potential to help with some of the grid balancing issues that the utilities face. So, for example, and I didn't bring this as my technology, so I'm totally making it up on the fly, but if I have a small home-based battery technology then my, that my utility can access. So, not, so now not only do I have kind of a backup if I lose power to my own home, but if my utility can actually access the electricity out of that, my utility can use that home-based battery technology to balance out like a peak load issue, for example. Those kinds of things, I think we finally are getting to the point where our metering technologies and our, our kind of forecasting technologies can allow us to use those in ways that are beneficial to everyone on the grid. And that's, that's part of the distributed energy network. The storage capacity mm -hmm. being decentralized is, is a key part of that. Mm -hmm. So that the energy companies can pull from homes and businesses when they have, when, when the energy company needs the capacity and the, and the homes and businesses have extra capacity, being able to pull that back in an efficient manage, manner is part of it. And let me be clear, I'm, I'm talking, let me make two clear points. One is, I'm not talking about centralized large power generation going away. I'm talking about it being added to and being augmented by much more energy generation being decentralized. So I'm not talking about the power plant ceasing to exist. I'm saying it's going to be increasingly one part of the system uh, with a lot of other things in the system as well that aren't there right now. The other point I would be very, I, I would want to make pretty clear on this technology is I think that it's going to be extremely disruptive. And I think it's going to be tough on the energy industry, the utility industry in general, because it's going to be very disruptive. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're going to have to move toward something where you're actually, you're, the, the utility's role is to help your customers generate their own energy. You're going to have to help your customers not only generate their own en energy, but help them interact with the grid in such a way that they are regulating both their demand and the distribution capacity that they have. So there, I, there's I a hear lot of, you, Warren. I just don't think people want to do that. But that said, I want to go back to something you they, said. They may, not, they may not want to do it themselves, but they may hire an energy company to do that on their behalf. To do that on their behalf. So let me say up. one thing real quick, and then I'm going to you, Jan. But I just got to say right. it because I don't want it to get left behind because I want our, all of our listeners to know. that When we talk about a uh, home-based generator um, serving as excess capacity for the grid, it's really important to understand the difference between dispatchable power and intermittent power. So if all you're doing is creating kilowatt hours that when you don't want them, I have to buy them, that's a very different grid impact than if what you are doing is making kilowatt hours available to me when I need to buy them. And I think that's the piece that the distributed network uh, crowd, I'm going to put you in there, the distributed mm -hmm. network crowd, right, is, is really got to think about. It's not just about generating a ton of electricity and forcing your, your utility to buy it when you don't want it. It has to be done in a way that is dispatchable. That's what centralized generation gives us today. When I know I need electricity, I fire this thing up and I have it. And that's what the membership of a co-op or customer base of another utility has come to expect. And that, that'll be interesting to see that play out. I'm sorry, Yana, I interrupted you. That, that's quite right because it, it, it's a great segue 
uh, first I'll briefly mention the technology that I'm excited about, Yay. but then I'm not letting Warren off the hook yet. <laughs> um, the technology I'm actually most excited for is the potential of creating the batteries that could store the type of energy that is most likely going to be used by our customers, and that is solar batteries. Now, those don't exist yet, or at least they're not anywhere near to being marketable. When you say solar battery, you mean a battery system that's used in conjunction with a, a solar, solar panel. panel. Okay. Yep. Just so, sure. so, so you, you know, a lot of our customers have heard about Elon Musk and the announcement that he may have created the solar battery, and mm -hmm. I think there's been some reports in the press that the power wall. Yeah, yeah the mm -hmm. power wall and the power pack. There's mm -hmm. two different uh, alternatives. And, you know, it's not, there, there's some disputed reports as to whether or not it even works. It certainly is not commercially viable at this point. Mm -hmm. And I want to get to that first. But I guess I'm left with an interest. And, and that's where I think the issue is that just putting solar panels on your roof isn't going to help the utility because the utility needs to be able to count on that energy. And the only way it can count on that energy is if those panels are combined with a battery that can store it. Which leads me to this question, and that is, why? Why are we going to disrupt the current system? We, we've identified this, silence. <laughs> we, we, we've identified a number of disadvantages. And the only advantage thus far I've heard is, well, it's decentralized. And I think there is this common perception in everyday life that decentralization is good, centralization is bad, cue, you know, federalist, I mm -hmm. suppose. But given that the technology storage capacity is storage capacity isn't there yet, why is now the good time to start moving in that direction? I don't think that it's a matter of trying to fix something that's completely <clears throat> broken right now. I think it's a matter, more matter of we're going to continue to have, again, I don't necessarily want to keep going back to the cliche of the Internet of Things, but when, when devices and buildings and vehicles and the grid and power production talks to each other, you're going to generate efficiency. When that technology allows two, two machines next to each other to share energy and swap energy and storage when it's needed, there, there's something to be said for, for that gaining traction because it'll, it'll create efficiency and save money. I love that answer. Can I just say that? I love that answer because I do think it's appropriate for this particular podcast, which is what role... Uh, it, it, sometimes I feel us saying, here's an end goal I want to get to and I'm going to force, you know, force us to go there because of some sort of an end goal or agenda. And what you're saying is that tech, the technology itself is going to drive the change as it brings opportunities into the, into the industry and how we do what we do. So I like the philosophy behind your answer. I'm just not 100% sure that the dollars and cents are ever going to add up to you being able to do what you're describing for as inexpensively as we have historically been able to do it. Well, now and, let and, me... and those efficiencies you're seeing at the home level we're also seeing, the, 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 having that same impact on the centralized kind of generation system and transmission system. And, and perhaps now is a good time to, to the extent our listeners don't know about this, is to talk about the base load, the intermediate load. I teach and them the, about that every podcast. Do you? I'm sorry. <laughs> no, but we can. We can. But we can. But yeah. we'll very briefly do it. And that, the point being that you still have to buy your base load. And that base load... At least at this point, I don't see any description of the technology that would allow for the distribution network. 
you know, I don't even see it coming in at the intermediate level. It might come in at peak level. And quite frankly, look, I mean, I've heard very smart people say that, for example, perhaps we're not pricing solar correctly, especially in northern Michigan, that the only time solar comes into play in northern Michigan is when we're running our air conditioning. So perhaps it's solar ought to be priced at the peak rate and not at the base rate, and maybe that would make a difference. Mm -hmm. I just don't know that the technology is there yet. Or if there's an actual analysis that anyone has done, mm -hmm. uh, other than relying on the, well, de decentralization is better. Well, and one of the things, too, that starts to make that particular equation really complicated is every utility's load profile is different. And I'll use two utilities here locally. There's Cherryland, which we are a primarily residential utility. 95% of our membership base is residential. We peak at night when people come home from work and turn on their washers and dryers and, you know, feed their kids and all those things, turn on their TVs. Whereas our local municipal utility, they peak during the day. They have a much higher commercial and industrial load, and so they have a higher daytime air conditioning load. The system also peaks during the day. So our local municipal utility is contributing to the system peak, which means they are buying more expensive peak electricity than our local cooperative utility, which is not on peak with the system peak. So And so then these things start to get really confusing because if you talk about adding in a... Um, a rate that kind of accommodates the time when solar is producing, you've got to match it up to the load of the utility that solar is being sold to. Right. So it, it, it's, it's, I'm not hard. trying to make it more complicated than it is, but it kind of is because each case is a little different. Well, and at the risk, you know, and I recognize that as, a, as an attorney, I'm way more risk averse than a business person would be. What I haven't really heard still is an actual case for why things have to change. Now, it, they may change in the future. It might be better, but thus far we have hypotheses about how this will operate. But we definitely know that it's going to be a disruption. What we, so the, the costs are real. The benefits are hypothetical. And that worries me both as an attorney and, both, and as a director of a local utility. Because if we're wrong, our customers are going to be very unhappy. Now, you know, I serve a five-year term, so I suppose someone else will have to deal with the, that problem. But um, I, I do think that it, there is a I'm reason. I'm not 100% sure you meant to say that on the podcast. I did. Um, because I think it is important to recognize that there is a reason why utilities are different. I mean, utilities have historically been the most boring investment opportunity because they were highly regulated. And the reason they were highly regulated is because is due to a philosophical judgment that we don't want to experiment. We want it to be nice and slow. Now, we've done a little bit of deregulation and we've done a little bit of decentralization, but I don't think that the impacts have been 100% positive. I'll rest with, I'll end with that. And on that note, do you want to talk more about what, what technology you're really excited about? I do. I am truly very excited, even before Warren talked about his network and Rachel explained why it ties into my technology. I'm really excited about solar batteries. And the reason I'm excited about those is it is the, the intermittent nature of solar energy is the number one reason that everyone always gives for why 
solar just will not work, other than making some kind of a statement. Mm -hmm. I mean, I drove by the solar garden at both the municipal and the co-op utilities have jointly put together. You know, there are people who come to our meetings who have put solar panels on it, and I, I get it. Like, people want to feel like they're making a difference, but it is more of a political statement when you're doing it at a residential level without any battery power. And so, you know, th there, we now have commercial solar projects being built, and I just think of how much better those would be if there was an ability to store the energy. And I think the case for the tax credits for solar, to me, would become much stronger if it was the type of energy that can be stored. Because then you truly are talking about an alternative to hydrogen-based fuel. Because now you're saying, look, we can do one of two things. And I know the, well, oh, we don't have phone lines, so I'm not gonna set off the phone lines. <laughs> I mean, you can make solar and carbon fuel equivalent in two ways. You can tax the carbon, or you can give a subsidy Oh, Rachel is rolling her eyes before I can even finish my question, but my statement. But let me finish, and then you can attack me, and so can Warren. Um, you can have a carbon tax, which will increase the price of the traditional fuels, or you can give a tax credit for solar, which would reduce that cost. Now, whether or not it would be equivalent, I don't think anyone has done that calculation yet. But I do think that it opens up the possibility for a discussion of viewing both as reliable sources of energy. And now the question will become a more philosophical one of, if the cost is not equal, but reliability is held constant, do we want to pay a little bit more? Okay, so I hear all of that, but there's all this right. other cost thing that keeps going through my head. And that is when you talk about utility scale storage solutions for solar, my immediate response is for that to ever work, the battery technology has to be both dirt cheap and as abundant as dirt. And right now, neither of those things are true. I agree. And Maybe. I don't even think we're, we're deep into the development of technologies that are true like that. Do I think we have tech, battery technologies that might allow, we talked about this earlier, like a homeowner who wants a little extra backup do I think that'll come sooner? Yes. But that that utility scale battery, and keeping in mind the price point it has to be, like right now, is natural gas. I understand. And that's why I want to be very clear. The, the, the question, the, the basis was what excites you. Mm -hmm. And what excites me <laughs> is the prospect of it. And yeah. quite frankly, you know, as, as I understand the technology, and I by no means am a scientist, as uh, somebody pointed out when I was being appointed, why don't they put an engineer on the board and instead of putting a lawyer? And I said, well, there's no engineer who seems to want to be on the board of a utility. <laughs> Having said that, there seems to be two paths towards solar battery. One path is the one that Elon Musk is using and Bill Gates is using, and that is use the present battery technology to adapt to solar. And then there's another path. And this is the path that kind of intrigues me, and that is um, the path of trying to redefine everything we know about batteries. And that is where there is an agency, it is a federal agency, um, that has, is funding research into that area, and at least has reported in the press that they've made a significant breakthrough. 
I have not been able to detect whether or not that's true breakthrough on just, you know, government bureaucrats saying it is a breakthrough. Now, as a former Justice Department <laughs> attorney, I do have respect for my fellow federal employees. And so when a Department of Energy agency tells me that they've made a breakthrough and that they're now ahead of Musk Gates on that spectrum, that it gives me hope. And for those who are interested, the agency is ARPA-E, which stands, I believe, for Advanced Research Projects Agency slash Energy. And great. for those of our listeners who think, oh, there goes another big government program, this is uh, from the same people. The, the agency itself was modeled on what was, what is exists in the military called DARPA, so the people who brought you the internet. So, you know, sometimes the federal government does know what it what it's doing, and so that's what excites me, but I by no means know whether technologically that breakthrough is gonna happen tomorrow or in five years. But I think until it does, the discussions about renewable energy is always gonna be just a political statement. Well, and yeah, and that's where what you're talking about and what I'm talking about actually converge, they come together. It's because if you think about, again, the decentralized network, every thing that's part of that network, every intelligent asset, every Internet of Things component or piece of machinery is a battery. Your cell phone's plugged in, and if it's full, it can be a battery back to the network. The technology is going that direction that everything we use will also be a battery. It's interesting, too, because that's actually not an entirely new concept, although I do agree with you the technology is getting better. We've had, several years ago here at, at Cherryland, we had a water heater um, demand response program where we could essentially access people's water heaters, shut them off for a certain amount of time when we needed to shed peak load. So that concept is something that the utilities already have. I will tell you the two things that tend to make people nervous with that. One is people don't, as it turns out, like you controlling their technologies, right? They want to be the ones controlling their technologies. And so what you've seen is this kind of like move to try to make it more of a behavior modification model. But as a utility planner, we can't count on the behavioral modification. The only thing I can count on is if no matter what you think, I still get to take the electricity out of your phone when I need it. So let me throw a big bombshell on the table, which is the one thing that I think that's not being touched on here. Well, you didn't tell us this was good. You were going to end this thing with a bombshell. Jeez, okay. No, it, it, no <laughs> it, it, I mean, it relates to, the, to everything That's you quite said. a promise you've made. A lot, of, a lot of what you're saying here is it's unaffordable. It's not going to work for pricing reasons. Well, just to be clear, I, as, while the prospect excites me, I believe solar batteries are technologically not feasible yet. Once they become feasible, there's still the issue of how do you actually make them affordable, but they're not actually technologically available. Technology, in my opinion, is going to move toward a way and a destination where you're going to change, the utility industry is going to change their pricing model to be geared toward connectivity and capacity rather than usage. So people will pay so that they don't have to put their water heater at your disposal. Or, or the alternative of that is that you get a um, an incentive essentially by allowing us to, which exactly. is how the which is how our hot water heater program worked too. So I think that that's it, what that's really work. Where, and right I'm now, I'm sorry, was that and it didn't work? <laughs> I mean, just saying the, the program we no longer have. Yeah, that is how it. Right it, now in the utility <laughs> industry, and for you know a century at least, pricing 
is all based on what you use and when mm-hmm. you use it, right? Mm-hmm. Usage is driving all pricing. What if... Mm. Well, the two for, utility people are shaking their heads, I mean, but I, go I, ahead. No, I The bottom of the bill, for most people, it's a volumetric Correct. equation. I understand, yeah. If you got to the point where your connectivity to the grid and the capacity both that you access from the grid and provided to the grid mm-hmm. was the basis for pricing, that would change things considerably. The, the issue that happens, so one, Cherryland does have a, um, what we call an availability charge, and we do regular cost of service studies to establish what should be kind of, what that charge should be. And it's, it's designed to what you're, what you're describing. What is the kind of, what are all the costs I have to bear regardless of whether you use a kilowatt hour from me? Um, so it's, it's designed to not be volumetric. But one, and, and ours we know is not where it needs to be. We need to be bringing it up. And we're just not going to do that all at once and kind of have a rate shock. But what we hear when, pe- when, when utilities go in and start bringing that availability up, the immediate concern that gets waged against them is you are disincentivizing energy efficiency by bringing volumetric, volumetric charges down. So you're not, so it, I know, I, like I hear what you're saying, but then what happens is people will say, well, now I have no incentive to use less because it doesn't really, doesn't really have all the big of an impact on my bottom line. And, a lo- and, and not to, I know you're trying to poo-poo the affordability thing, but for most people at the end of the day, it's the, are the lights on and can I afford to pay the number at the bottom of the bill? You're right that if it, the pricing from the utility company is not based on usage, you're not incentivizing efficiency that that that's certainly a true statement but what if more people what if more businesses were what if more households are not looking at it that way but they're looking at it as here's the amount of energy i can generate myself at my own house they have a very strong reason to be efficient with that and then if they're paying the utility not based on usage but based on connectivity or capacity the less connectivity they need, the less capacity they need from the energy company, the less expensive it'll be because they can generate more of that themselves. But are we not <clears throat> are we not running into the same problem with econs and humans? Yeah, theoretically that's what you would do, but Cherryland tried it and their human customers didn't want to do it. I do think that it's not going to like I said at the beginning, it's going to be a very disruptive I mean, you know, one of the issues would be, you know, and this is a fascinating topic, the the extent to probably beyond the scope of this broadcast. Um, Podcast? Can you use it? You can call it whatever cast you want to. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Cast. Mm -hmm. Is the actual ability to influence behavior. You know, there was a famous book written by Cass Sunstein called The Nudge, and, you know, it got everyone excited that we could just nudge people to do the right behavior. But unfortunately, the only one that seems to work was the 401k contributions. All the, all the other ways in which we have tried to nudge people into appropriate behavior hasn't worked. And once again, I, 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 in the face of real-life examples where this thing is not working, it's hard to accept that on a broader scale it will. It would be great if it did, you know, because I've been often accused of being more of an econ than a human. So I certainly understand the logical appeal of the approach. But if we're basing a system based on what we actually expect the people to do, I don't know that that'll happen. Rachel? No, I, yeah, I don't have anything to, to add into that other than that the, some of the rate structure things you're talking about are actually rate structures that are fairly similar to how we handle our commercial and industrial membership now. 
um, demand charges, things like that. So it's not honestly that far outside the realm. But one of the things that the residential member base has benefited from is us kind of us taking on all the risk of the you know power supply time of use changes demand changes and letting them just have kind of a base level um, electric bill that they can count on and plan for and what you're describing make adding in more complications with kind of what you use when you use it how you use it it, it does create a I, I think the potential for a little more burden on the end use user I, I agree um, and a little bit more financial you, you essentially distribute some of the financial risk of the energy markets directly onto the membership in Cherryland's case, membership, or in other utilities' case, customer. I'm not saying right or wrong, but just that's kind of uh, would be one of the things we'd have to, you'd have to think through how that's going to impact people. And especially, we're so in Cherryland service territory, we have a fairly significant penetra penetration of low-income residential members that we serve. So we've got to think about those things and the impacts they'll have. Well, and that is one of the issues that every utility has, and that is, the advocacy for when people come in and they say, oh, we're okay with higher costs. Mm -hmm. You know, those people are. But when the rest of your customer base is not, mm -hmm. you have to take that into account. And sometimes, unfortunately, um, the majority of the customers are not willing to do what we theoretically can agree to is a better way to do it. I mean, mm -hmm. theoretically, we can agree that time of use would be great, right? If we, you know, if you turn on your air conditioning in the middle of the summer, you should pay more than if you run your washer in the middle of the night, unless you're a Cherryland customer, which apparently changes all of that dynamic. <laughs> but I hope even your people sleep, even your customers sleep at night. Um, they, they sleep easy with those low Cherryland electric cooperative rates. <laughs> but one of the issues you end up having is the folks who have the least efficient homes other people who don't have the means to have the efficient home. So who do you end up punishing by achieving more precision? And once again, I'm probably much like Rachel. I love the concept of price precision mm -hmm. because I want, you know, I like my air conditioning in the summer, but I do I think I should pay more? Absolutely. But, you know, when I sit on the board of a utility and the question comes up, do you raise your rates? I have to think of it not do I philosophically think about this as an acceptable outcome, but will there be riots in the streets? Well, and that's actually another interesting thing, and and just, you know, we're getting close to the end of our podcast, but... But we haven't gotten to your exciting I know, technology. Well, we, and we will, but another All interesting right. thing, kind of to go back to what we started with you, Warren, and talking about kind of this distributed uh, network, that also has implications on that side, because the people who are most likely to be able to afford to invest in their own home-based generation are not the only people we serve, right? And so you, you start to get this, you, cr you add a, a, a fairly significant amount of um, resource disparity uh, layered into the kind of uh, socioeconomic disparity you already have, right? So now my, my higher income members, they can afford to generate a bunch of, of electricity on their own home, which decreases the amount they're paying for their part of the grid, or they may be able to have battery technology, which means I'm going to be buying things from them. And then over here, I have someone in low quality housing stock with high level usage who can't afford to invest in their own home-based generation, nor can they afford to invest in the smart home energy management tools that would allow me to use them as a battery and it starts to just get very complicated and not, I'm not necessarily saying wrong, right wrong or indifferent but it gets when, we, when you're having a conversation about technology and then all of a sudden we start talking about 
socioeconomics and philosophy and such starts to get really complicated. And my and I will admit my technology falls under this exact same category of things that it's easy to say you want when you don't have to deal with some of those other complexities. Well, and I think that again, the business model changing, the reality is that if these kind of things that I that I see happening do actually happening, do actually happen, the energy companies, utility companies are going to stop so much acting as energy producers and they're more going to be energy traffic cops. Well, I guess. does that come with go. a badge? Yes, I it could, does. I, could get I, I, I was going to say, I mean, the, your local municipal utility does acts as a traffic cop right now. Yeah, and I think that'll just happen more and more as you, especially as you debate between who can afford different technologies. Mm-hmm. My technology is electric vehicles, and actually, let me just say that. Please I tell us about the electric <laughs> vehicles, Rachel. <laughs> no, I don't. We don't need to get deep into it. And in fact, I'll shameless plug. We They've did, been on the streets for a while. They so. have been, and we right. did a we did a really nice electric vehicle podcast with uh, Jim McGinnis at Crystal Mountain about six months ago. So if you're listening and you're super interested, go check that out. Um, but mine actually fits a, in a similar vein as yours, Jan. I think electric vehicles have two different um, kind of important opportunities. One, and I know you're not going to like this, but if one of our goals is to decrease greenhouse gas emissions, we know that the transportation sector represents about 30% of greenhouse gas emissions, as does the electric sector. But we are seeing in the electric sector a, a, a significant move towards lower emissions, whether that's by com- transitioning from coal to natural gas or bringing in renewables. Cherryland is going to have 30% mostly wind, but renewables in our portfolio by the end of this year. So the um, emissions impact on the electric sector is is, is not is, is, is becoming more uh, desirable. So if we can trans, if we can kind of move over to doing a little bit more of our transportation with electric, I think there's a lot of value there. In addition, when you see us bringing in things like a lot of wind, the issue we have is that wind turbines often produce at night. And I don't even just mean at 7 o'clock at night. I mean at like 2 o'clock in the morning at night. So we need a place to put that load, right? And if we can create a system where people are um, incentivized to charge their vehicles during off-peak times, it gives us a, a load to serve with that production, and, and this is now where it gets a little pie in the sky, if you get to the point where you essentially have exportable power with an EV, so if you're plugged into the grid, you can either be, kind of like your cell phone example, right? You can either be charging up or contributing in. I can potentially start using electric vehicles as distributed batteries throughout my grid. Mobile distributed batteries. Exactly. exactly. So there's a, I just think there's a ton of opportunity there. And mm-hmm. I like driving them because they're really fun and quiet. Now, now one, one question I, I do have is why would I not like it? Oh, you there, you there started. Some, <laughs> I know there was something I was. Oh, it was, because I was simple. Well, because you said that we, about kind of like what motivates the change, and I was I was worried you weren't going to like my reason for wanting the change. And the no, I I think it's it, it's a perfect approach. To I think we'll end right there. I'm perfect. Is that is that how you heard it, Warren? Yes. Is that how you? All right. <laughs> I, I guess I would add one thing, and that is the comment that I don't think was an important part of what you were saying, but how important transportation is to our emissions. And that is why, while there are many things that can get one excited, like smart household appliances, I'm really excited about solar batteries or if someone invents batteries for wind power. And that is because the highest use of our energy is not at the house. And so while the only thing that individuals can control is what they do in their house, the greatest impact we can have on the planet is by actually 
either commercial and industrial uses or transportation. Mm -hmm. And that's where the that's battery right. power comes in. And that's why I'm excited about battery power. And that's why I have absolutely no issues with your excitement for electric utility, uh, electric vehicles. Thank you. And, and everything I've been talking about, the vehicle to grid technology <laughs> is actually one of the most important parts of that. Because, you know, going back to your example of Cherryland may have the capacity and the ability to incentivize people to charge electric vehicles at night when it's a non-peak time, if those people are then incentivized to plug their vehicles in and the parking deck downtown, the other utility, which shall remain nameless, mm -hmm. could then pull energy during Oh, you peak can times. name it. I just yeah. can't name it. Yeah, no, th and I think that's that's kind of the concept. And, I, and, I, and I'll be willing to admit that I, th I think we're a ways away from that in that way. Correct. But the, uh, the first step is kind of continuing to see the price point come down for EVs. And of all the technology, well, this isn't quite a fair statement, but of the technologies we've talked about today, this is a spot where we are seeing that price point come down where EVs are pretty much cost competitive with a, correct, you know, kind of a, a standard fossil fuel fired vehicle. That Warren and I drove in to here. You brought an EV? No, no, no. Oh. The fossil vehicle. <laughs> the fossil vehicles. Oh. Yes. Yeah. Okay, yes. well, well. And now everyone You'll forgive us. Yeah, yes. I know. <laughs> so you, you gave us no electricity while you are here. But anyway, so anyway, I think there's... there's I did think about carpooling with him, but then I thought, nah. <laughs> and this is why you should never rely on behavior modification as a way of um, building your energy efficiency portfolio. Yes. Behavior modification is oftentimes most effective when driven by economic motivation. Yes. There we go. Well, so we are actually uh, very close to being done, but I, I really want to thank you guys for coming in. This was a lot of fun. And I think we do need to do another podcast sometime in the near future. That sounds good. Um, Absolutely. And, and this time we'll let you talk more instead of asking questions. No, more. I love to ask questions. But <laughs> if, if anyone who has listened thus far with us has any ideas you'd like us to take on, um, go ahead and throw a question in the comments and we'll consider it for our next podcast. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.